0: Amen. Wonderful. Well, good morning, everyone. Friday's good because Sunday's coming. Hallelujah. Turn to someone next to you and say, Sunday's here. Yeah, very good. Um, Just to say, last week we sent out a survey to uh, those who would call Redeemer Home uh, about our plans to possibly start a gathering in the north of Colchester. Thank you for all those who have finished the survey. Um, the stats tell us lots of people have started them but not finished them, and we can't see those. So please make sure if you do the survey to actually finish it and press, press the button at the end. And if you haven't done the survey yet, please, if you could do it, um, you can find it on our website, uh, forward slash surveys, and we would love you to fill that in as we work out how best to take a next step into what we feel God is calling us to do in terms of going to the north of Colchester. Well, today is part five of our Jonah series. So please turn with me to the book of Matthew. Yes, Matthew, not Jonah. Uh, Some of you have just worked out how to find Jonah, and now we're in Matthew. It's right, Matthew chapter 12, and we'll be coming to that in a few moments. But today's part five of our Jonah series. Um, Just to give you a quick recap in a minute or so of the Jonah series. So Jonah was a professional prophet in the nation of Israel, God's people. He was a highly respected religious man, and God gives him an assignment to take a message to the enemies, to the terrorist, brutal enemies of his nation, the Ninevites. And Jonah doesn't like the assignment God gives him. And despite his professional Christian vocation, if you like to call it that. He runs from God, and he finds a ship waiting, and if you ever want to run from God, it will be easy. There will always be a ship waiting. He jumps on a ship to go in the opposite direction to where God sent him. God sends a storm to pursue him and grab his attention. He realizes the storm's his fault, so he says, throw me overboard. He gets thrown overboard, and he gets swallowed by a large fish that he's in for three days, and three nights, and then he is spat out, or regurgitated, if you prefer the imagery, or resurrected, maybe even, um, and then he obeys God, and he goes, despite his reluctance and bad attitude, and he preaches to the Ninevites, still while working on his own heart issues. Just as an aside, it's been great to get a little bit of feedback from this series, um, Early on, I prayed with a, a lady who said, I've been like Jonah, no one would know it, but I've been running from God my whole life, One thing chasing one thing to another, and I'm done with running from God, and now I just want to run to Him. And I know God has spoken and touched other people's lives through the preaching, or through the worship, or other things that are going on, just to say we really value feedback. So if God is working on your life through anything that's going on in church life, or even outside of Redeemer, please let us know. Ping an email or or, or write a a letter if you want, or uh, just speak to us. We'd love to know what God is doing in your heart. Um, But today we're back looking at the story of Jonah for the last time. And what we're going to actually look at is what Jesus says about Jonah. And Jesus is speaking to a bunch of people in the scripture we read today. And he basically says to them, even if you experience a miracle from heaven, right here in front of you, an undoubted miracle, Miracle, the story of Jonah or the sign of Jonah is just as significant as if that happened, if not more so for some of us here. Because Jesus says, One greater than Jonah. Can you say greater than Jonah? Is here. So if you're in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be looking to start off at verse 38. One day, some teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, We want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. So there's these crowds, and these guys come around, these religious leaders, teachers, and Pharisees, and say, Jesus, prove to us that you are who you say you are. Now, these religious leaders were, generally speaking, proud, arrogant religious leaders who didn't serve the people and help them, but actually lorded it over them. And they were more concerned... At trying to find a way out of following Jesus than find a way in. So their questioning of Jesus was actually to trap him, to try and get him to make a mistake, to try and get him to lose the popularity of the people, and it was trying to get them to feel better about themselves, to hold on to power, to hold on to control. They're not really seeking Jesus, they're not really seeking truth, they are looking for a way out rather than a way in in because their hearts have already decided that they don't want what Jesus offered, because there's already a king on the throne of their hearts, the king of control, or the king of power, or the king of approval, or the king of prestige, and it will be the same for some of us in this room today. The king on the throne of our hearts is not Jesus, and there'll be pockets of our lives where Jesus is not the king on the throne. So Jesus answers them with something of a rebuke. But just to say, obviously, Jesus and here as a church, we welcome genuine searching questions. Jesus never turned people away who were actually wrestling with the truth. He never turned them away when they were wrestling with trying to find out whether he was God or whether his claims were true. And you are most welcome if you are genuinely wrestling with those questions. Jesus welcomes them. We welcome them. We're not scared of questions about God. But for these people, their hearts were already taken. They've already got a God that they serve, an idol, if you like, anything that's more important than God in our lives, anything that has the seat of most importance in our lives. And Jesus knows the motive of their heart because Jesus looks at their heart. And as we saw with Jonah, you can't run away from God. So whether you come in this morning thinking, I'm hungry for God, or you've come in thinking, I know God's pursuing me, but I I just need to find a reason not to believe him. You can't run away from God. God's going to get you in the best possible way. And I trust through this morning that actually you're realizing that in your heart now. But Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus replies to them after they demand the sign. And he says, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Some of you now realize why we're preaching on Jonah at Easter. The people of Nineveh, Jesus says, will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah, now someone greater, can you say greater? You can say it with a smile, say greater than Jonah is here. But you refuse to repent. So let's unpack this and see a few things from Jesus' words here. So the first thing is that you cannot escape the weights of both Jesus' teaching and hear Jesus' words and Jonah's preaching that there is a judgment day coming. The message God gave Jonah to preach, which we heard from Al in the original language, was a few words, five words in total, translated in English in various ways. But Jonah basically preached this message, the most pound-for-pound effective evangelistic message ever preached. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it. That's all we're told of the sermon. And Jesus says that the people who responded to that will stand up at judgment day and condemn all of us and everyone else who doesn't repent of their sins because they responded to that message. Jonah's message was a proclamation of judgment. Can you say judgment? judgment? No one likes judgment. We'll talk about that in a little while. And he says 40 more days. In the Bible, there are examples of literally 40 days of things happening, the flood and Noah and famine. But 40 days is a Um, it's, it's, it's it's a number of judgment. It's a number that speaks of an appointed and imminent judgment, whilst in many cases it's literally been 40. It resembles something of when time is fulfilled. So when you read something about 40 days or 40 nights, there's something about the Bible saying when time has been fulfilled, when something has been completed. And so Jonah's saying when time is fulfilled, and then he says you will be overthrown. Overthrown is a statement of judgment, isn't it? When a king returns to overthrow every evil power and rebellion against him. And we've been taught, and generally culture around us increasingly is saying that judgment is an outdated Old Testament angry God concept. Have you heard about that? You know, if you read the Old Testament, you get the angry God. If you read the New Testament, he's a different God. He's full of love. Well, I mean, Jesus doesn't give you that option, as we see in scriptures today, because he says that is about this. He says the Old Testament is about me. You can't separate the two. So the idea of there's an angry God there and now there's a a loving God here and we separate them is just not something you can do. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 9 verse 27, just one of many verses, it says this, it is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment, the inescapable teaching of the Bible and Jesus, when He was on Earth, is that you and I have a time of judgment set and appointed in the purposes of God. It might be in a few minutes, please, Lord, no. It might be in a week, in eighty years, in forty years, in thirty years, in twenty years, in six weeks. We just do not know. But there is a appointed day when we will stand in judgment before God, accountable to him. Have you ever soberly considered that? Christian, don't sit there and think it's for the unbeliever only. (laughs) Have you ever sat there and considered it and think, if you're a Christian, wow, were it not for Jesus, but because of Jesus? Hallelujah. Have you ever considered your days and thought there is an appointed time of judgment coming? Judgment is something that we can shy away from instinctively, especially in the West, right? So we're taught that life should be comfortable. We're taught that life should be as we want it. It's outdated to think of God as a God of judgment and cruel. That's just archaic, caveman thinking. A God who judges, I thought we wanted a God of love. Yes, we want a God of love, but a God who does not get angry, when his creation is attacked and damaged by evil, cannot be a God of love. If you don't have a God who gets angry and who brings justice and judgment against evil, you don't have a God of love. You just need to stop and think about it. You can't, true love moves against injustice, does it not? True love defends. True love must act. As someone pointed out, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life. Not experiencing oppression or injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. That's quite provoking, isn't it? You've got to have had a pretty comfortable life where no deep injustice or wrong has been done to you to not want a God who brings ultimate justice. Someone who's seen genocide in their own country said this, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that we should desire a God who refuses to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea will inevitably die. Sometimes we need to sit and think whether our view of God is just culturally formed in our own little bubble here in this part of the West or whether it's formed across the nations. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that we should desire a God who refuses to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea will inevitably If you want a God of love, you need a God who judges, who holds man to account, who brings justice against evil and wrong. Do not be duped, friends, by Western comfort. Although Western comfort is crumbling all around us, isn't it? The last three or four years have shown us that what we think is safe and comfortable just ain't so. And we need something deeper than we've looked at before. Now, obviously. When you think about this, the challenge is we quickly realize that we ourselves are not innocent. I don't think I need to sit here and convince you that you are not innocent, that I am not innocent. Just look around. We are human. Don't look at anyone particular for too long. If God is, then He is absolutely pure and holy, which He would have to be to be God otherwise he's just some other creature like us. And he would be compromised if he simply brushed under the carpet what we consider our lesser wrongs, and he only judged the greater evils of the world. I mean, who gets to draw the line? What's a lesser wrong and what's a greater evil? He cannot do it. He will not do it. He does not do it. His justice and love is not compromised. We will all face a righteous and a deserved judgment. Do you feel the weight of that? And Jesus goes on to say that at that final judgment, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation that Jesus is speaking to, but also everyone who rejects Jesus and doesn't repent of their sin and turn to the Lord, they will stand up on that day and they will condemn those people because they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah, but now someone greater than Jonah is here, and people are still refusing to repent, even though the Ninevites did. Jesus is saying, you have no excuse. They repented when a grumpy, sulky prophet, wanting them to suffer, who had no love and gave them a short five-word sermon of judgment, they turned and repented. And we read in Jonah chapter 3 how they repented. It says this in Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites believed God. Can you say believed God? All of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth and did other things and the king of Nineveh proclaimed, let everyone call urgently, say call urgently, on God, let them give up, say give up, their evil ways and their violence. Who knows God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. For them, putting on sackcloth and ashes was a symbol of their inward repentance. Their hearts were ripped open. They wanted to throw off their their dirty ways. They grieved their wicked ways. They acknowledged their choices that had been wrong and destructive, and they allowed their hearts to hear and receive what was being said. They humbled themselves. They looked at their lives, and in modern lingo, they fessed up, as some would say. They confessed and owned their sin, and Jesus says that is a big deal because they did that in response to the warning of a loveless, judgment, petty, angry, mixed-up prophet who ran from God and didn't love them, and Jesus is saying, standing in front of you, giving you this message is one greater than Jonah with a greater message and a greater love for them than they could ever imagine. And friends, I'm preaching to you today as an ambassador of God, and I'm saying standing in front of you, knocking on the door of your heart, is one greater than Jonah, one with a greater message, one with a greater love, one with a greater hope, as we've heard this morning. So how is this message that we hear, many of us, week in, week out, that we've sung about, and some of you, maybe you're in church for the first time, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you've heard it before, but you're hearing it today. How is this message great, sir? That means we have more responsibility than the Ninevites to respond. Well, firstly, Jonah preached judgment, and the king called his people to respond, saying, who knows? Can you say, who knows? Say, perhaps. They based their response on a who knows, on a perhaps God may yet relent. He may yet have compassion. They had a perhaps, we have an absolutely sure. They had a God made you, we have an empty tomb that said God will do. Hallelujah. There is no need for doubt. Now, today is a great day to talk about no doubt. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said is true. And we must take it as all true. Now, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the Bible itself says we are to be pitied above all men. So if you believe Jesus rose from the dead and that your sins are forgiven, everything else is true, all the best and good bits and news. How is it we trust God with our salvation, but we don't trust him with our peace today? How is it we trust God with our salvation, but we don't trust him with comfort and hope and provision? If, all he, if he rose again, all he said is True. We have the promise of Jesus, the surety of this promise, which I'll share some verses with you in a moment, whose power to deliver on His promise we celebrated Easter, and it is He, the King, who has conquered the grave, who has made these very sure and secure promises. We have the message of grace, not just of judgment, which declares that because of Jesus in my place, if you want the shortest summary of the gospel, I think that's it, Jesus in my place. Four words. If you grasp that in your heart, you have grasped the good news of Jesus fully and richly and deeper. He took my place on the cross. He took my and your place in judgment because of your wrongdoing, your falling short, your selfishness, your arrogance, your pride, your lust, your addiction, your rebellion, your sexual immorality, your stealing, your gluttony, your porn, your lies, and of course, mine. Not just the wrong we have done, but also the right we haven't done. Sins of commission we've committed and sins of omission. We often talk about the wrong we do. But what about all the right we just don't do? It stacks up and he took it all. Jesus in my place. We need not doubt with a perhaps or a who knows, whether he may yet. We have a greater message of grace which says that judgment will be delivered. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus and accept his invitation... To take judgment in your place, to wash your sins white as snow, not with a paintbrush, but with the blood shed from his body on the cross. If you accept that invitation and you accept that he now brings you to God, gives you access with God, intimacy with God, a hope and a future, you need not doubt. Hallelujah. There's a greater message than Jonah, it's not just a message of judgment that you meet with it, perhaps, let's do what we can. It's a message of grace, which is all the whole package, which is met with a Jesus who says, you will have it if you receive me. Here are some verses for you to chew on. This message is sure and we can have confidence. John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him will. Say it again. Will not perish and have eternal life. Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty eight, Come unto me all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Say it a bit louder, will. John chapter six, verse thirty seven. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. John five, twenty four. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He comes not into judgment, but has passed from death to life. <coughs> John eleven twenty five 25 to 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Not a perhaps, not a maybe, but a will. A sure. That can be yours today. And so i ask you, do you believe this? Now, Christians, this is where we tend to sit and think, I hope there's an unbeliever in the room who's listening to this. And yes, if you don't follow Jesus, and until this point you haven't believed, I think you're a believer if you're in church. And some, somewhere on the spectrum, even if you're dragged into here today, there's something in you searching. Everyone's a believer in something. I don't think there's such a thing as an unbeliever. Everyone bases their whole life on the belief of something. But Christians, make sure we don't think this trusting or this believing in God is just for someone else. Beware acknowledging this and savoring it as a past event and just a future hope rather than a present reality. So many Christians live like this. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe I'm going to heaven. I believe all the things Jesus said. And we look at it and we cherish it and it's lovely and we'll get a heaven, new heavens and the new earth. It's glorious. But when the Bible speaks about belief, it speaks about trust, it speaks about dependence. So I can say I believe this chair will hold me, but there's only one way to really believe it will hold me. And I'm hoping it does. Here we go. So here we go. Now I believe the chair will hold me. Is this how you live your Christian life? And if you're invited in to follow Jesus, it's not a case of saying, I agree, I acknowledge, I believe. No, no, no. It's saying you depend fully, you rest fully. I believe. (laughs) I really believe. But that's how it works, isn't it? You trust God and you act on Him, and guess what? He holds up. He's true. He's faithful. I better stop this. And you believe. Having too much fun. So, So, Christians, do you believe? And what does that look like for your time? Your energy, your health, your money, your wallet, and of course your salvation or the goodness of God. Do you believe he's good and he's for you? Do you believe that no matter how dark your past has been or how deep you feel in slavery to something now, that he can free you? Or do you believe? Or do you believe in it? Do you go to him when you are heavy laden? Not just when you're heavy laden with sin, but with the cares and the worries of this world. Do you run to him assured and finding rest in him? Or do you run to distraction and entertainment? When I need rest, where do I go? Netflix, race across the world, whatever it might be. But do I actually go to God as well, and primarily, and first? Where am I getting my peace? Where am I getting my rest? Where am I getting my hope from? My bank balance, my relationships, my prestige at work, or actually in Jesus. The easiest way to tell is if you're like this, or if you, even if you're like this, it's not fully in Jesus. Welcome to the club. If you're like this constant in your security, in your hope, in your peace, even when there's valleys and mountaintops, there's a security and a stability because it's based on Him, not just me saying I believe in him. Young men and women who have lived in Christian households, some of them are out, but there's a few younger looking ones here today. Have you trusted in Jesus for yourself? Have you sat on the chair? Or is there still something, and it's a beautiful inheritance where you say, my family believes in Jesus and I believe it too. That's a beautiful thing. But have you gone and sat on the chair yourself and said, I believe? And are you basing your life on not your family's choices, but on your own choices for Jesus? Have you tasted the sweetness of it, known the assurance of it, and taken hold of it for yourself? Do you believe this? We have a greater message than Jonah. Hallelujah. And if you are yet to trust in Jesus, and you would say, you know what? I thought I was a Christian because I go to church doesn't make you a Christian. If you've yet to trust in Jesus, lay your life at the foot of the cross and say, I need forgiveness, I need mercy, I acknowledge you as king. Do you believe this today? Do you feel a sense of God knocking? On your heart? Do you feel the sense of inner witness that this is true? And like the Pharisees, maybe, and religious leaders, like all of us, we're finding reasons to not believe in it. We're asking questions that aren't really questions because we're trying to find a way out rather than a way in. Jesus has a greater message for you no matter how far you've run or how deep you've gotten into sin and dirt and how anxious and insecure and worried you've been, that you can still know salvation, eternal peace, deep, abiding rest and wholeness. We have a greater message. The cross demonstrates it, the empty tomb declares it, and the Holy Spirit in your heart right now affirms it. Can I have a hallelujah? And I do pray, Holy Spirit, in this moment, just right now, Christian or not Christian, you birth life in those who don't believe in you, Lord, and trust in you. And you birth peace and assurance in believers' hearts now. If you don't have that, ask God to do that. Why would He not? And if it's dull and normal to you, we have to fight every day through our flesh and our self reliance to remind ourselves of the wonder of this greater message. Call on him and be saved if you need to. Right now, forget about me. Do that. But I will invite you to do so in a few minutes. But as we finish, it's not just a greater message. We also have a greater messenger. It's not just about the facts that are delivered, which are sweeter, richer, deeper, truer. But it's about the one through whom they come the one who comes to us even now. You know, Easter is about the messenger of God who didn't simply announce from heaven, take a Facebook ad, send a WhatsApp message or create an Instagram reel. I know I'm telling my age because I haven't mentioned TikTok or Snapchat and all those other things. Easter is about the son of God stepping into our world, humbling himself, taking on flesh, learning to walk and to talk and to labor and to sweat, to be tempted and to resist Be ridiculed and mocked and rejected, to be hunted down, to be murdered, fleeing with his family when he's a child, also that he could bear a crown of thorns, be spat at, mocked, and ultimately to have our sin and shame pressed down upon him as he willingly submitted to God the Father on the cross, knowing the cost and the pain, and knowing the victory and salvation for all those who had done that to him. What a messenger. It's very familiar, but may it become full of life. As I said earlier in this series, quoting others, Jonah was cast out into the sea and the sea became calm. He was swallowed by a fish and taken down to the depths of the ocean and three days later he was brought back to the land of the living. Jesus was cast out into the ocean of God's wrath at the cross. And the great tempest of God against our sin became calm. He was in the heart of the earth for three days like Jonah and then resurrected. Jonah went through all of this involuntarily because of his disobedience. Jesus went through it voluntarily because of our disobedience. Jesus did everything right that Jonah did wrong. Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus ran towards them for you. Jonah was on a mission of revenge because he hated the Ninevites. Jesus came on a mission of rescue because he loved them and you. Jonah was all about his own self-protection. Jesus poured himself out in self-sacrifice for you. And one final verse to sum it all up. Jesus in my place, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus in my place. Hallelujah. God the Father gave his son, the perfect son, to be sin for us in the place of judgment so that we might become something, not just have something. Yes, so that we would get somewhere, eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord, not in hell. But that we might become something, the righteousness of God. Here and now, right before God, made whole in Christ, in Jesus, in his life, not my own life, in his intimacy with the Father, in his acceptance, in his victory over all things. One could summarize it as I've said, Jesus in my place. And so as we come to an end, I want you to respond. I wonder if the band could... Come up, please. We're going to come back to song in a few moments. And we're going to have communion. There's a station on the side there and the table on the edge and station at the at the back there. Now, communion is a chance for Christians to remember and partake in what Jesus has done. So we remember, and with an act of faith, we remember how we have died with Christ. Hallelujah. And we remember how we have been washed white as snow as we drink the wine. And we remember that now God speaks to us as if we are in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, please do not take part in communion, but allow it to be an invitation for you to consider what Christ has done and to maybe partake for the first time. If you today want to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus and I fix my life on him, I would love to pray with you. In fact, I'm going to ask you to Make a response in a moment. And I think it should be public. I think there used to be what churches would call the altar call. You used to come forward, didn't you? You used to stand up, you used to be invited forward if you're giving your life to Jesus. And then the Ninevites, they responded quite visibly, didn't they, with sackcloth and ashes. I'm not going to ask you to to do that. Um, but I've done it many times, and it's not wrong, but sometimes we say, let's all just come to me privately after the service and let me know. And that's okay. But sometimes there's a need to be public about this before Jesus and everyone else because he's worth it all. But I want you to respond today through the ABCs. Acknowledge your failings. Acknowledge our falling short. And if you're a Christian, we, we come repenting again. We acknowledge we have fallen short. We acknowledge our hearts are weeping. And if they're not and they should be, we invite the Holy Spirit to help us. And then we believe in the Lord Jesus, not just with words, but deep in our hearts, we sit on the promises of God. We dwell, we rest upon, we put our full weight in God. And then we confess it with our mouth, and we say it out loud, (laughs) and we say it